As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Before we start, I did want to mention I have not been sleeping well, and so therefore my cognitive abilities have been significantly damaged. And I just referred to a pillow as a towel, (laughs) and that's just how today's going to go. Well, usually when you can't think of the word, you you say uh, thingy, or you just vaguely describe it and put a Y at the end of it, like uh, when you're looking for the plug to the uh, laptop, where's the pluggy any thingy? And the other night we're playing cards and we had, uh, I don't know, some like classic rock station on or something, and they played Babe by Styx. And you were trying to think of the name of, uh, of the group. And you described them as, uh, what was it? The Boat Song Band. The Boat Song Band. And I knew exactly what you meant, Come Sail Away, (laughs) even though it has nothing to do with boats and everything to do with UFOs. Did you know that? Did you know that's what that song "Come Sail Away" yeah, is about? I feel yeah, like I remember okay, that. all right. That's also what the song "Sail" is about. Is it? I don't know, but that's what the music video is about. Huh. Well, I like that song a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> all right, here we go. About seventy thousand years ago, Mount Toba, a supervolcano on Sumatra, erupted, and it spewed out an estimated 670 cubic miles of ash and hot lava into the sky just in the initial explosion. And that may have triggered an ice age. Oof. It also nearly wiped out the entire human race. I didn't realize how close we came. We came extremely close to being completely annihilated, extinguished as a species. Some experts suggest that the human race was diminished to about 1,000 survivors. Wow. And perhaps even as few as 40 breeding pairs of humans. Well, that's a gross way to put it. Breeding pairs, that grosses you out? Yeah, it sounds like you're talking about birds. (laughs) This is referred to as the genetic bottleneck theory. The youngest Toba eruption 
almost said erection, uh, happened sometime between 70 and 75,000 years ago. It was a super volcanic eruption at the site of present day Toba in Sumatra, Indonesia. This one event is considered by most volcanologists to be the single largest volcanic eruption in all of human history. Wow. In fact, it's considered to be the Earth's largest volcanic eruption all in the past 28 million years. So how big was this? It was big. Parts of India, Indonesia, and a good portion of the Indian Ocean was covered by about six inches or 17 centimeters of volcanic lava and ash. They also estimate 1,700 cubic miles of rock was thrown into the air. Again, this was just the initial eruption. 1,700 cubic miles of rock. That's all the way up to 11. That's way past 11. If you took the Empire State Building and you just ground it up into a pile of concrete, but then did it 3 million times, that's how much it would be. 3 million Empire State Buildings worth of debris. The crater that remained is now Lake Toba, and it's so large that you can see it from space. The ash and the volcanic gases that were released into the atmosphere due to the eruption blocked sunlight, causing a volcanic winter. And evidence suggests that the average air temperature worldwide plunged between 3 and 5 degrees Celsius, or 5.5 to 9 degrees Fahrenheit. And this lasted for years after the eruption. That's hard to even fathom. The scope and the scale of it is just beyond my being able to grasp it. There have been some model simulations that indicate that the temperature decline might have even been greater in the northern hemisphere in the first year after the event, somewhere around 10 degrees Celsius or 18 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. That's a huge difference. The supervolcanic eruption in mass alone was at the very least 12 times greater than the largest volcanic eruption in recent history. And that would have been the 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia. That event caused what is called now the 1816 year without a summer in the Northern Hemisphere. That would make a good topic on its own. It was such a huge eruption that uh, it was just winter for 18 months straight. That sounds very unpleasant. Actually, it's a lot like Maine. (laughs) (laughs) No, we love Maine. Scientists have calculated that the ash cloud from the Toba eruption covered an area of about 2,800 kilometers at the very least, and it was six inches deep. But based on new methods of computational ash dispersal, (laughs) (laughs) but based on new methods of computational ash dispersal measurements, the Toba caldera complex possibly could have erupted as much as 13,200 kilometers of bulk volume. Volcanologists rate and label volcano erupted debris on a scale from one to eight with the volcanic explosivity index. Eight, of course, is the highest. But based on these new model theories involving the Toba eruption, they had to expand the scale because the VEI or volcanic explosivity index would have to go to nine. <laughs> oh, wow. Not not 11. When you have to rearrange the whole scale just because yeah. something's so far out of whack, that's <laughs> well, a big deal. All of this resulted in a severe reduction in the size of the total human population, mostly due to the effects that the eruption had on the global climate. This is where the genetic bottleneck theory comes into play. 
The Toba eruption specifically and the genetic bottleneck in human evolution about 70,000 years ago seem to be connected. According to this theory, between 50 and 100,000 years ago, populations of humans decreased drastically. And this is supported by genetic evidence that suggests that humans today, every one of us, are descended from a very small population of, here it comes again, breeding pairs that existed about 70,000 years ago. It all lines up. The resulting ecological disaster from the eruption, which includes the destruction of vegetation and severe drought in the tropical rainforest belt, they estimate caused a 10-year volcanic winter that destroyed significant amounts of all the food sources. And this, of course, along with the initial explosion, caused a severe reduction in population size. Consequently, the genetic differences in all modern humans may reflect changes with only, within only the last 70,000 years, as opposed to a gradual evolution over hundreds of thousands of years. Most of our gains have been made relatively recently. And do you think that there were certain commonalities between the types of people that would have survived that scenario that even further narrowed where we would have started from? It appears to be geographical. Ooh. One area that was least affected by the Toba eruption, certain areas of Africa were least affected, I should say. And although the exact geographic locations of modern human populations at the time of the eruption is unknown, it appears as though Africa was the one place for sure that our population survived, ultimately migrating to other parts of the world. Africa, of course, has been called the cradle of civilization. Right. So it starts to all line up. When mitochondrial DNA was analyzed, it was estimated that the major migration from Africa occurred, you guessed it, 60 to 70,000 years ago. And that's extremely consistent with the dating of the Toba eruption. Wow. And we've talked about this before, that uh, mitochondrial DNA research suggests that all modern human beings walking on the planet right now, you, me, everybody, is descended from one female who came from Africa. So is it possible that this volcanic eruption that took place some 70 to 75,000 years ago and created such an ecological disaster could have only left 40 breeding pairs of modern humans? Ugh. Most researchers are saying that that would be ex the extreme example, and it's possible, but many mainstream researchers believe that the number was probably closer to 1,000 to maybe 10,000 individuals. Still, that's pretty damn close. For sure. So when's the next supervolcanic eruption going to happen? That's immediately where my mind goes. And are there supervolcanoes that are closer to us in the Western Hemisphere? Well, the answer to the second question is definitely yes. In fact, a large portion of the continental U.S. is a supervolcano. Today we call it Yellowstone Park. And when was the last time that Yellowstone had a supervolcanic eruption? Volcanism at Yellowstone is relatively recent in the grander scheme of things, with the calderas created by large eruptions that took place. Uh, there have been three major supervolcanic eruptions in Yellowstone. One was 2.1 million years ago. One was 1.3 million years ago. And one was 640,000 years ago. That, of course, being the most recent eruption. However, the time between the second and the third eruption is shorter 
than the time between the third eruption and where we are right now. So Yellowstone's probably ready to blow. So we're due is is what you're saying. One would think so. In addition, according to the analysis of earthquake data that they made in 2013, this blew their minds. The magma chamber at Yellowstone is about 80 kilometers or 50 miles long and 20 kilometers or 12 miles wide. It also has 4,000 kilometers or 960 cubic miles of underground volume, and it's 6 to 8% filled with molten rock. Now, that's about two and a half times bigger than scientists ever imagined it to be right up until 20, uh, 2013. We always knew it was big, mm. but now it's two and a half times bigger than we thought. So what would that mean if there were to be a major eruption? Well, if Yellowstone were to erupt in a similar explosion that took place 640,000 years ago, it would destroy everything in a four-state region surrounding the park, burying four states in lava. Uh, It would eject enough ash and debris that would cover an area the size of Texas about three feet deep. Wow. Of course, it you know, would be spread out over a larger area. The entire continental U.S. would be severely affected, if not destroyed, even as far away as the East Coast would be covered with at least a few inches of volcanic ash. Of course, volcanic gases would ultimately circle the globe, affecting everybody and, and the weather overall. An event like this would obviously shut down the power grid. It would affect agricultural production for decades, but... As huge a cataclysmic event as this would be, this eruption would only be about 30% the size of the Toba eruption. Wow, that puts it in perspective. Now here's the good news. Scientists don't think Yellowstone's going to erupt any time in the next, oh, 10,000 years or so. In geologic time, that's not too far away, but for you and me, we don't have to worry about it. Even though it is possible for a major eruption in our lifetime, it's possible, but they put the odds at about 0.002%. Oh. So, sleep well. My information comes from Forbes Magazine, Wikipedia, Britannica.com, the BBC, and National Geographic. The idea that, uh, and and again, it's probably not quite this extreme, but they think we could have gotten down to just a handful of people that survived. I won't say breeding pears again. Thank you. But they say the likelihood of being wiped out by a supervolcano is, uh, well, it's more likely that we're going to get hit by an asteroid, if that makes you feel any better. Much. Thank you. And now, that thing in the middle. Back in 1946, a man claiming to be a detective gave a pedestrian a camera and asked her to take a picture of a suspect. The detective turned out to be a gangster. The suspect turned out to be his ex-wife. And the camera turned out to be a concealed shotgun that was fired by the shutter button. That didn't end well. We needed one more of these liners to fill out the page. And this was it. This is the Box of Oddities. You hear Kat and I talk a lot about aura frames, and there's a reason for that. We live in Ecuador, and our family is all over the place. In fact, Kat right now is up visiting her mom, and when I say up, I mean Maine, 
We got her an Aura frame so we could share photos and videos from any device and they'll instantly appear on the frame, which makes it easy because she's getting up there in years. It's easy to set up. It takes about two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app and it's the perfect gift for Mother's Day. Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. It is the perfect gift for Mother's Day. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get 30% off free shipping and their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Renee, who is a member of the Order of Freaks on Patreon, wrote, Ha! So I always start my day with a steaming pot of dark roast and a spooky show. This morning, about the Highgate Vampire on Discovery+. Plus. Imagine my delight when I started listening to the most recent episode of The Box of Oddities whilst getting ready for work, and J.G. starts telling the tale of the Highgate Cemetery. I thought for sure he was going to mention the vampire. I didn't know there was a vampire story about that cemetery. Oh, man, I am am sorely remiss. Sadly, he did not. However, Kat didn't disappoint when she did a vampire story. Thanks for always making me smile. You, (laughs) you, You guys are the best. Happy New Year. See, you've still got the vampire story in your bucket. Yeah, I'll be looking into that. And the box of oddity effects keep on coming. All right, my love, what you got? A woman has told her story of being a little girl abducted in Colombia and then left in the jungle only to be saved and raised by monkeys. I love this story already. I want to be raised by monkeys. Now, I want to uh, start off with a trigger warning. This does uh, have some very uncomfortable topics 
Uh, but uh, overall, it's it's a good story. So okay. n- not to fear. The story is recounted inside Marina Chapman's memoir, The Girl with No Name, The Incredible Story of a Child Raised by Monkeys. Shortly before her fifth birthday, Marina was playing close to her home in Columbia when she became aware of two adults creeping up behind her. She recalls, I saw a hand cover my mouth, a black hand in a white hanky. I then realized that there were two people taking me away. There were children in the background and I could hear them crying. She knew she was being driven deep into the Colombian forest when she was dumped. She described how she thought that the kidnappers would return for her, but they didn't. She was just left alone in the jungle. So two people, a couple of people kidnapped a five-year-old girl, drove her deep into the jungle and abandoned her? Mm-hmm. She thought that maybe uh, passersby would come along, someone would rescue her, but she said that nobody came. She just walked and walked and she screamed and she cried, but nobody came. Eventually, Marina recalls coming across an extended family of small monkeys. They didn't run when she approached, and being with them was better than being alone, so she stayed close. She observed them closely and learned from them um, how to climb trees. Uh, What were they eating? Does that mean that's safe for her to eat that? That's a smart little kid. How to clean herself. Uh, Looking back, it's assumed that these were likely capuchins. In Central America, they're called white-faced monkeys, or carablanca. And the white-faced capuchin is found in the extreme northwestern strip between the Pacific Ocean and the Andes in Colombia and northwestern Ecuador. Well, these monkeys went about their business. They were scavenging for food. They were grooming each other, playing, and mostly ignoring Marina, which was lucky because capuchins can be very aggressive and quite dangerous. In a large group, they would not have had a problem dispatching a, a small child. Marina said she survived by foraging, usually subsisting on nothing more than scraps left behind by the monkeys. But she quickly realized that if she followed the monkeys around, uh, they would often drop stuff. So they would gather bunches of bananas, but some would fall to the ground and she would eat those. Were they were the monkeys doing that intentionally to try to feed her or probably not just being sloppy? They're just sloppy monkeys. Capuchin monkeys are so sloppy. Eventually, she said some of the infants showed interest in her, but it wasn't until she became very ill one night that she was accepted by the troop. She describes how she got terrible food poisoning, and she thought she was going to die. Mm. She was writhing around in agony on the forest floor, and a large, older male monkey came over and squeezed her arm and then began shoving her toward a water source. Wow. She said that he led her to a stream of muddy water and forced her head in. She began gulping down mouthfuls of this gross, dirty water and soon began to vomit. Shortly after that, she began to recover. Oh, that's amazing. The monkeys is smart. She called the older capuchin grandpa and said (laughs) that after this event, over time, the monkeys allowed her to sit in trees with them. She felt that she had sort of been accepted by them, and she decided that she had been accepted by them when they started to pee on her leg. You know, it's just like politicians nowadays. (laughs) 
Mr. President, you're peeing on my leg. Wow, there's a callback. Catherine McKinnon is a biological anthropologist at St. Louis University, and she said that the incident with the male capuchin forcing her to drink so she would purge if it happened sounds more like the male capuchin was trying to drown her. Hmm. Apparently, they often thrash prey around, hit it, roll it around, and play with it in water uh, before they kill it. It's a very messy process. No. And if that male capuchin kept a very tight grip on her hair and kept shoving her face in the water, he likely wasn't trying to help her. He was likely trying to kill her. So he, he saw, in his mind, an injured animal and thought, well, this is easy prey. Possibly. McKinnon also said she doubts that a capuchin would have had the ability to go through the cognitive steps described, ID the illness, understand how to fix it, and force the girl through that process. I I get what they're saying, but uh, I think monkeys are smarter than we might give them credit for. Yeah, all the time. We're learning more and more about how monkeys have greater cognitive abilities than we understand. And sometimes we discover that they have greater cognitive abilities than us. I was just reading an article in Smithsonian Magazine um, about bonobos and how they greet each other and how they say goodbye to each other. It's very much like we do. They have their own secret handshakes. I love it. I love that idea. There was. I want to know their secret handshake. (laughs) So you can get into their speakeasy. I want to be part of the monkey club. There was an article published in uh, Scientific Reports in 2019 that showed Capuchin and Reese's monkeys presented greater cognitive flexibility or shortcuts to problem solving than humans did. Hmm. Anyway, Marina spent her time sleeping in holes in trees, grooming and being groomed, and walking on all fours. In an interview with NPR, Marina's daughter, Vanessa, talks about how Marina has no sense of chronology in her life. Really? That's fascinating. She was born sometime in the early 1950s um, in a village that she was too young to have learned the name of. The opening few days in the jungle are the strongest in her memory in terms of order and events. The day that she was dumped, her feelings were very strong. But after that, every day became less eventful, more routine, and it just became a mishmash of events. And her concept of time had really gone astray after years in the forest. Oh, my God. Years. How many do they think? They don't know because she wasn't keeping time. God. So her floating memories have been stitched together. Vanessa recalled, I can remember mom once telling me as a young girl how the monkeys would crack into nuts using tools. Then when I was about 10 years old, we saw on the children's news program, breaking news, monkeys are so smart they can break into nuts using tools. (laughs) My sister and I laughed. We knew that already. But if we'd told experts before that, based on my mom's memories, they probably would have dismissed it because they didn't find it first. So back in the jungle, years went by. And then one day, Marina was spotted by hunters. By that time, she had lost her human language completely. Sadly, this was not much of a rescue. She claims she encountered abuse and hardships before eventually being saved by a neighbor and moving to Yorkshire, England. Wow. The first known photograph of Marina is when she was 17. Well, they think she was 17 because they don't know for sure. That's correct. 
It's estimated that her stay in the jungle was between the ages of five and ten. Okay, wow. Marina's story is wild, and many publishers opted not to pick up the book because they found it too difficult to believe. And Marina is now 71 years old, and she can't remember anything about her biological family or her life before she was kidnapped. Hmm. And it's thought maybe she experienced such trauma at a young age that she's a victim of false memories. And it doesn't help that the press has exaggerated or misreported or misrepresented much of her story. In fact, even the subtitle of her book, which is The Incredible True Story of a Child Raised by Monkeys, Marina admits is a bit much. (laughs) Because she scavenged from the monkeys and learned from them, but it wasn't like she was part of their troop. It wasn't like Grandpa Monkey was holding monkey lessons for her. Right. She was with them long enough, though, that her personality was forever affected. Soon after the move to England, she met John Chapman, and they married six months later. She trained as a cook, eventually working her way up to become a chef at Bradford's National Media Museum, and she had children. But her daughters recalled their mom teaching them how to climb trees. And that just seemed like good fun. And sometimes she'd pat around the house on all fours. They also noticed that there were strange things that she seemed to struggle with that other parents didn't, like opening doors. Really? Because apparently you don't have to twist anything in the jungle. That's fascinating. She didn't fling her poo around, though, did she? No, no, no. Okay, good. good. It was only when the girls made friends and met their parents that they began to think that their mother was unusual. She groomed her children, like monkeys do, (laughs) and had a habit of biting her husband. (laughs) Okay. I believe her story. (laughs) Mostly because I want to. I know, I know, obviously. But, But come on. There are doubters, though, of this strange tale, and Marina says she doesn't get upset about that because many people do believe me, and I'm happy with that. With the help of National Geographic, Marina underwent a series of tests, including bone density scans, which showed signs of severe malnutrition between the ages of 6 and 10. Uh Uh-huh which led to her growth being stunted. As an adult woman, she's only like five feet tall. Scientists also hooked her up to a sort of lie detector test, which proved that her subconscious brain registered images of capuchins with the same strength of feeling as pictures of her human family members. Well, how about that? So if her story is true and how much of it is true is kind of up to you to decide, but I would definitely suggest reading this book, The Girl with No Name, The Incredible Story of a Child Raised by Monkeys. She wasn't really feral, but so when you look at it statistically, by the time that she was, quote, rescued, she had spent half of her life as a monkey. Well, I mean, not as a monkey but yeah no that's it's true she was (laughs) monkey-ish apparently she still is (laughs) i got most of my information from the guardian from bbc npr wikipedia of course all that's interesting.com and dailystar.uk well here we are it's the first of the year 2022 it's weird that is so hard to believe because i just got used to the idea that it was 2020 And now we're past 2021 and into 2022. Now, it's still late 2019. Is it for you? (laughs) Yeah, in many ways, that's the truth. 
Um, wanted to uh, thank those of you who have just become our first patrons of the new year. Yeah, it's wild to think that some of you just found this podcast and decided, I'm going to become a patron, and we, that's that's bananas. Yeah, we, we really appreciate that. And it's thanks to all of you, not just our patrons, but all of you for your support because it's allowed us to do this full time. Thank you for listening, for sharing with your friends, for your reviews, which I am frequently led to tears by. (laughs) (laughs) You say nice things and it makes me uncomfortable. And I like watching her reaction. Well, that's rude. I like to watch my wife cry is what you just said. Mm -hmm. You vile human. Welcome to the newest members of the Order of Freaks, Corey. Cambot Fox, <laughs> Larry, Natasha, Creeny, Pat and Eliza, Michael, Mike, Jack, and Morgan. I know it sounds trite, but I love you. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the box of oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash BoxOfOdditiesPodcast On Twitter at BoxOfOddities And Instagram at BoxOfOdditiesPodcast Copyright 2022 Can you f***ing believe that shit? All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.